0: Hello and welcome to Broads You Should Know, the podcast about amazing and noteworthy women from history. I'm your host, Sarah Gorski, and if this is the first time you're listening, you picked a great week to jump in. We are almost to the middle of a mini-series I've dubbed, They Called Them Crazy. Each week we are looking at uh, into the life and the legacy of a woman whom society at some point called Crazy. And why were they called crazy? Were they certifiably insane by today's standards? Or were there other reasons that they're shunned in their lifetimes? And that is what we are here to find out in this series. We started off with the quote, crazy prolific women, starting with Christine de Pizan, who was the first female published in recorded history. She churned out massive amounts of literature in medieval France at a time when most women and most people in the world generally couldn't even read. And then last week, we looked at Chiquina Gonzaga, the Brazilian woman who dared divorce her husband so she could keep making music, and she went on to become the first female conductor and one of the most prolific composers of the 19th century, establishing the national rhythm of Brazil, choro music, with some of her songs remaining an integral part of Carnival even today. So if you missed those earlier episodes about Christine, about Chiquina, then I highly highly recommend you cue them up after this episode. But today, I am bringing you a woman who, I dare say, is even more prolific than Christine Ann Chikina. We are talking about none other than Hildegard von Bingen, or if you don't speak German, Hildegard of Bingen, or from Bingen, as that's how they named people way back when, way back in the Middle Ages. She is also known as St. Hildegard and Sybil of the Rhine. So if you hear those names, that's the same person. She was obviously a nun. Eventually, she was a magistra, which is the nun's self-elected leader, and a prioress, who is appointed by the church leadership, as opposed to the nuns themselves. She is widely acknowledged as the first female composer, and actually the first like named composer at all in recorded music history. So a lot of these surviving medieval songs that made it through all of the years between now and then, a lot of them were just anonymous. They didn't have composers. But Hildegard's name is one of the very first we ever see. So not just the first woman, but the first any composer. Uh, in addition to being sainted by the Catholic Church, which was also not without drama. She was widely thought to be a saint in her own lifetime, but the church denied her canonization not once but twice before finally approving it. Um, So in addition to being sainted, finally, she also was named the 95th, quote, Doctor of the Church, which is a position considered like a teaching theologian. And she received that designation in 2000. 12. That's almost, almost a thousand years after she lived. Uh, it's also worth noting only four women total have ever received that honor from the church. And so Hildegard is one of them. Hildegard predates Christine de Pizan, but only by a couple of hundred years. She was born in 1098. so a lot of her story takes place in 1100 and Christine was more like uh, 13, right. So uh, she is what Hildegard is widely known not only as a writer, but also a composer, a philosopher, mystic, visionary, and medical practitioner. She was what we now consider today a polymath. Now, I had to look up that word because I wasn't really sure what it meant, Um, and so for those of you who are like me, um, a polymath is a person who is extremely skilled and knowledgeable in many different areas of expertise. Other famous polymaths in history include people like Copernicus, Aristotle, Leonardo da Vinci was one, Nikola Tesla, even Benjamin Franklin is considered one. Um, I will say, with a side note of disgust, that if you Google famous polymaths, very few women are on those lists, so that's annoying. Anyway, if you have not heard of Hildegard von Bingen before, I think you are going to be amazed at her, and if you have heard of her, Maybe you'll learn even more, because there's a lot in her file, my friends. So let's buckle up and dig right in. Now, to start with, I usually kick off with, she was born on this date, and I usually go chronologically through her life. However, for Hildegard, I'm changing my format. I know, regular listeners are going to be shocked, I like never change anything, I like things the same. I always like them the same, even though I know change is good. But this time, I'm going to start with her accomplishments first, because I it just feels like the right place to kick off with her. So Hildegard, in her lifetime, wrote three major books of, quote, visionary theology. Uh, the first one is called Scivias, which translates to know the way. And then Liber Vitae Meritorum. And then Liber Divinorum Operum. Obviously, those are Latin. I obviously don't speak Latin. Doing my best, as always. Um, You will have to take my word for it when I tell you that these books are not like little short stories and novellas. They are dense. They are very intense. She covers things in these books like how the universe is shaped. It's shaped like an egg, she says. Very interesting, but it's much more complicated than that. She goes through the creation story. She talks about how redemption works. She does a deep dive into the vices and the virtues. She does a giant thesis on the relationship between God and his creation. And listeners, I am i am gliding right through this stuff because there is so much to talk about with Hildegard. So if any of these... I, you know, these books or other things I'm about to mention, pique your interest, I really encourage you to go and do some research yourself because there are literal articles, full articles, hundreds of articles about every one of the things that she did, each single book. Um, And I also wanted to say for my, for my grad school friends who are listening, um, I just want you to know that you should never feel bad if it takes you a long time to write your thesis because that first book, Scyvius, took her 10 years. 10 years. And the second two books, apparently, um, she, writ- she wrote over the course of the following 30 years. So those books took her even longer. She was a slow but amazing, obviously, writer. So anyone who feels bad and feels like they're slow, guess what? You're probably not as slow as Hildegard. Now, in addition to the visionary theology books, um, she also wrote two major medical and science based texts. One was called Physica. And the other, Cause et Cure, Um, Physica, uh, that book describes like the scientific and medicinal properties of various plants and stones and fish and reptiles and animals. She like has this whole, almost like a codex, right, of all of the things in nature. And she documents them all and how they can be, you know, what she documents like what they are examining them, and then also what they do in, in interaction with the body, like in a medicinal way. Fascinating. Um, side note for my beer lovers, the, this document, Physica, is also thought to contain the first recorded reference of the use of hops in beer as a preservative. <laughs> Hildegard is the first person who wrote about that. Um, anyway, um, Cause et Cure, the second book, which I think in in Latin translates to uh, the cause and the cure, is focused specifically on the human body and its relationship to nature. She documents the causes and cures of the various diseases, and she describes medical practices, things like bleeding. Um, They did that a lot back in the old days. Gross. Um, She also includes remedies for common ailments like burns, fractures, dislocations, and cuts. Um, And in particular, these books, these two, both of these books, are very historically significant because most health practitioners in this era were women. So I didn't know that, by the way. I always assumed it was dudes. No, mostly they were women, which does make sense. And very few women knew and wrote in Latin. So very little medical text from this time period made it at all like there's like almost no medical text from that time period so finding hildegard's books with these like huge descriptions of medical practice is it's she, she is like kind of the source for that information there's not really anybody else it's hildegard okay next i'm going to talk about her music hildegard also composed music she has this big collection called Symphonia Armoni Celestium Revelationum. Revelacionum maybe. And it is a collection of music and poetry. And specifically, it's 77 songs together form a liturgical cycle for the church year. And inside this collection is also Ordo Virtutum, which is the first recorded morality play and musical drama. So the play, it's basically the first musical. It features a great struggle between the 17 virtues and the devil over the destiny of a female soul. Very appropriate. Um, Interesting fact, all the characters in the musical sing except for the devil, because the devil lost his musical voice when he fell from grace, and now he's setting out to corrupt the music of everybody else, too. I kind of love that. Um, Anyway, so Hildegard's musical compositions, in general, they really stand out amongst the other compositions from that time period. Um, Other composers are doing these, like, simple, like, one octave lines. Boring. If you grew up in church like I did, boring. But then there's Hildegard, and her melodies are like spanning several different ranges. They're kind of improvisational. They're not so square. They're freer melodies. Uh, and they're they're more elaborate in general. And so she's writing this like gorgeous lush music when everyone else is writing these like boring single octaves. Um, it's thought... Uh, by some of the scholars, I was reading uh, articles about her that Hildegard's lack of formal training in Latin. So she was never formally trained in Latin, um, and in fact, for her for her books, um, the final books themselves were actually written down by her assistant. Um, she didn't do much of the writing herself, but she oversaw everything very closely. So she could kind of she could read and interpret Latin, but she wasn't considered a scholar of Latin, and because of that the scholars of today think that she wasn't quite so bound to all the grammar rules of Latin. So the words that she wrote kind of flow straight from her head, like this like stream of consciousness, this divine stream of consciousness. Um, And more than one of my sources also talked about how her religious poetry is almost indecent in its lushness in, in so she's living in a religious world, seemingly obsessed with being drab, like She lives with, you know, in a compound with Benedictine monks, very strict, very drab, very, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I said it, strict and drab. Um, So Hildegard is using in her writing and her music, very colorful imagery of, of natural and organic things like gardens, growth, flowers, jewels, and the language sometimes was so lush that it was like almost erotic or sexual, which of course is very scandalous for the church for a nun to be saying those things. Um, of course, that's the part I love the most about it. Um, for instance, uh, in one piece, she describes the Virgin Mary, quote, your flesh has known delight, like the grassland touched by dew and immersed in its freshness. So it was with you, O mother of all joy. Um, so very, you know, I guess like, it's also just so feminine where you have all these monks' voices and the other music, and these single these single ranges. You have this beautiful, like, for lack of a better word, flowery language. And, and lush really is kind of, I think, the best word to it. So in addition to these written and musical collections, we also have nearly 400 letters in existence today. So obviously there were more than that written at the time, but we have four still today written by Hildegard to a wide variety of world leaders and religious leaders at the time period. I'm talking about people like kings and queens and emperors, and popes and priests. and of course common people too, common people would write her and all of them are writing to her and asking for her prayers and advice. And she as far as sources indicate, she really replied to all of them. She was very eager to disperse her wisdom, give her advice, you know, maybe send a rep- you know the, the recipe for that like balm that she knows that was in one of her books, you know. Um, one of the people who wrote uh, her biography, Fiona Maddox notes that these letters, quote, offer fascinating insight into the different ways that she portrayed herself. To men, she was but a poor, frail woman who was speaking what God had told her. In correspondence with women, she was much more straightforward and honest, end quote. And I love... Hearing that, it's like coded language, like depending on who you're speaking to, you have to speak to them differently. And that, can you believe? So, that obviously still happens today all the time. Here we are in 1100, the medieval times, and we're witnessing like a woman who had to play by the same rules, the same effing rules. So, uh, anyway, back to Hildegard. So, we've just covered. Just the existing publications, musical and otherwise, which were discovered by the outer world long after her death. A lot of this stuff kind of stayed in her monasteries um, during her lifetime. So like some of the music really wasn't even discovered and widely known until even like the 1970s. Like kind of like a crazy late time period. But in addition to those publications, Hildegard also made up a language. It's called lingua-lingua. Ignota, which translates to unknown language, and it was a series. Uh, it was a unique alphabet and a series of invented words that corresponded to a list of, of about a thousand nouns. And one scholar believes that Hildegard used the lingua ignota to increase solidarity among her nuns, kind of like a like a nun secret code. Uh, other scholars disagree, and they think that quote. The lingua is a linguistic distillation of the philosophy expressed in her three prophetic books. It represents the cosmos of divine and human creation and the sins that flesh is heir to, end quote. So there seems to be a lot of disparity amongst scholars about the purpose of this mysterious language. Um, as per my usual, I'm going to stick with the more interesting version, which is that it was like a non-secret code, because I think that sounds really fun. <laughs> um... In addition to all of the things I just talked about, we definitely should add to the list that she ran two progressive AF monasteries. Now, it didn't start this way, and I feel like I need to give a little more background history. Um, So when Hildegard was first enrolled as a nun, and I'm using the word enrolled because like the word that a bunch of the articles I was reading used was enclosed which I find really disturbing when she was enclosed in the monastery. Um, But then as I read more about the monastery, that word choice makes more sense. And I'll just read you the quote. There's a quote about what her first monastery, which was um, D.C. Botenberg, Yeah, yeah, I said it right. D.C. Botenberg was like for the nuns, quote, each enclosed in a small stone cell or tomb, in a confined area of the monastery away from the monks. A single window linked them to the outside world, and they were allowed one meagre meal a day in winter and two in summer. They prayed at regular intervals throughout the day and night. End quote Uh I don't know I can't. I don't even have a comment to add. Like that sounds like just I don't, I don't know. It sounds like a terrible life. Um, the circumstances being such and being fed so little and cooped up, the nuns were often sick. Hildegard herself suffered quite a bit. She spent 40 years at D.C. Bodenberg, and um, she was ill like a lot of it. And her mentor named Jutta she almost fasted herself to death on like more than one occasion, my sources say. So this is like, when I earlier was like making fun of the strictness of the Benedictine monks, this is what I'm talking about. Like, like very strenuous. And apparently it also was very overcrowded. So after Jota dies, she was kind of the head, the head nun. Um, Hildegard is elected headmistress of the nuns. And... Very quickly, she begins the very laborious process of trying to separate her convent of nuns from the monastery and the monks. Um, uh, A few sources also mention that the nuns wanted more independence generally from the monks, and hearing the description of what it was like, I can relate. Um, Hildegard was also really starting to develop her work at this time, and an important piece of her theology was all about balance in all aspects of life. Um, By the way, there's a lot of aspects of her work and they're all really interesting. And I just didn't feel like I had enough time on this pod to talk about all of that. Um, So, you know, whatever, like I said before, whatever you find interesting, look into it because there is but buckets of information about all these things. So her her for instance you can look up whole lectures on YouTube about this theology theology of balance, right? Um so she's got this theology of balance that she's been developing in all aspects of life and the super rigid rules and provisions of the Benedictine order are rubbing up against this theology. And so Hildegard is like we got to get out of here. So she starts to kind of separate and she requests permission to take the nuns elsewhere. But the monks didn't like this. Turns out that when a woman was given to the church by her family, as they were, um, and I think I think still today they are considered the brides of Christ, so their families literally paid marriage dowries for these women as they brought them and entered and closed them into um, the abbess. And surprise, the monks didn't want to lose that revenue. They didn't want the nuns to leave because it was a huge revenue source for them. So the abbot, the head monk guy, denies Hildegard's request. But Hildegard, it's not she's not stupid. So she goes up to the next level, the Archbishop of Mainz. And he signs off on the request and forces the abbot to comply. So Hildegard and about 20 nuns move from dissie to a new monastery at Rupitzburg, which is near the town of Bingen, where she's from, close to home. The abbot, of course, wasn't really happy about this, uh, and so he didn't make it easy. He demanded a portion of the money and assets that went with the nuns when they left, and it started like a six-year battle the equivalent of nasty legal negotiations to sort that out. And eventually they ended up giving some money back to the monastery. Boo. But in the end, the nuns were free from these gross, over-controlling Benedictine rules. And Hildegard granted them, quote, extraordinary freedoms. They were allowed to wear their hair long. They didn't have to cut it. A lot of times they were forced to cut it short. Um, they were allowed to keep their hair uncovered. Sometimes they were allowed to be to wear like flowered crowns. All of these things were like would never have been done in the Benedictine order, right? And and here these women like suddenly can enjoy their life a little bit. Uh, and then in 1165, Hildegard founds a second abbey. They were growing so much that they needed a second abbey at Ibingen. And she was abbess then for 30 women between those two locations. Um, Later on in her years, Hildegard's renown was so great. I mean, we already talked about how kings and the pope himself were like writing to her for advice. She's a super celeb, a super celebrity, especially in religion. But in her later years, she would go on and she would do speaking tours. She did like four different speaking tours. And in some of these tours, she was publicly denouncing the corruption of the church to these huge crowds of men and women. This was like absolutely unheard of at the time, which really just goes to show you how much clout she actually had. Um, I think I've managed to cover all the most important and extraordinary works that she did and published as always, as I said several times, I encourage you to read more into all those individual things. There's, so many articles about all this stuff. You can really and videos and you can just dive in and get lost and other podcast episodes too have covered it. Um those of you listeners who already knew of Hildegard before this episode, I know you might be clutching your pearls right now because I have rather intentionally omitted one of the biggest pieces of her story. And this piece of the story pretty much explains the whole reason that Hildegard, a woman in 1100, was able to rise ranks to the status of respect and recognition and rise so high that popes and kings wrote her letters. Because you like you all know by now as listeners of the podcast that this did not happen for most women throughout history and especially the Middle Ages. So how did Hildegard do it. It turns out to be the very same reason she made it into this mini-series in the first place. But you're going to have to come back next week to find out. That's right. Hildegard is too prolific to squeeze into one episode, so you'll have to come back for part two, and I promise it's going to be worth the wait. To learn more about Hildegard von Bingen, see some cool medieval art and art that she made of herself. You can head on over to broadsyoushouldknow.com. While you're there, you can click on over to the about page and read more about me. I've got a bio, photos, links to all my other cool stuff is there, and my social stuff. And also, you should follow broads you should know on social. We are on Facebook and Instagram at broads you should know, and Twitter at bysk. To suggest abroad for future episodes, fill out the form on our website or email us at broads.youshouldknow at gmail.com. Are you a fan of this podcast? If so, please help spread the word about us. Share your favorite episode with your friends and family and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Those things really help new listeners to find us. Broad's You Should Know is produced by me, Sarah Gorski, and edited by Chloe Sky, with original music by Darren Callahan. Finally, if you really enjoyed Hildegard's story, then you also should check out the two broads we mentioned at the top of the episode, Christine de Pizan and Chiquina Gonzago. And you also should check out some of our other sainted broads, Olga of Kiev and Mother Teresa. See you next week for part two of Hildegard von Bingen.